Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Many people agree the criminal justice system is broken in various ways. The different problems have been enumerated over the years, but at the very heart of the issue is a question. What is supposed to happen to people who are accused of crimes? Rehabilitation, punishment, justice, fairness. This morning we explore a new idea now being piloted in Oakland that touches on all the core principles of the system. What if people who stand accused could access a broader array of services? Their defense could be a touch point of care that might reduce incarceration and improve public safety, no matter the outcome of the trial. We're talking holistic defense. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In California, prosecutors are allocated a billion dollars more than public defenders. That leads to staggering caseloads, huge numbers of plea deals, and a basic unfairness in our system. But according to a recent New Yorker article, the organization our first guest co-founded, Partners for Justice, demonstrates that, quote, the most pernicious structural impediments to due process are surmountable. The amount of time people spend in jail, itself a factor in how likely they are to commit another crime, can be reduced, and people can get help whether or not they're ultimately convicted of a crime. We'll explore what's been working this morning with Emily Galvin Almanza, founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just set up the state of play in public defense for people you know who haven't been living this. You got into public defender work here in the Bay Area, right? I did. I was uh, very proudly started out as a public defender in Santa Clara County. And what did you kind of see there? Like, what is a what did you do as a public defender just kind of on the line? Yeah, so most people, when they think of our criminal legal system, they think of, like, law and order episodes from the 1990s where there's, like, a murder every minute in the subway. Um, but actually, about 80% of the cases in our criminal legal system are misdemeanors. Hmm. And that sort of 80-20 ratio is true of most American jurisdictions. I started out as a misdemeanor trial attorney in San Jose, California, and the vast majority of what I saw was not really people doing bad things for no reason. Hmm. What I saw was people who were trying to survive, hmm. people who had been pushed into completely untenable situations by circumstances beyond their control, people who were doing their best but operating inside a system that, if anything, set them up more to fail than to succeed. I also saw a system that was particularly targeting low-income people and black and brown people. I think 
most Americans think that our, our legal system is sort of equally applied to everyone. But in fact, 80% of people who stand accused in our, in our criminal legal system are so poor that they get a public defender like me. Hmm. So our system is really directed at a very particular group of people. I could go on for longer than your listeners probably have about the history and the why and like our, our history as a, as a nation formed by slavery that created this, this system. But the bottom line is I saw a lot of solvable problems. I saw a lot of wrongly accused people, a lot of people who were accused of something that maybe sort of related to something they did, but was way more seriously charged than the reality should allow. And a lot, a lot, a lot of addressable problems that our public systems were failing to address. Huh. So you then went in your career out to the Bronx, right, where this mode of doing defense had been developed that I, I think we're now calling holistic defense, right? Um, talk to me about what you saw in the Bronx that kind of inspired you to, to go down this road. Yeah, so I'd always been thinking a lot about the things beyond the courtroom as a defender. Um, I myself had a, a youth uh, that involved myself making some really awful choices and getting arrested. Um, so I never walked in with the perspective of like, I'm the lawyer and I'm very different and special is really the perspective <laughs> of like, oh man, this kid has done stuff that, that I've done, except he's black in East LA and, or in San Jose and, and I was white in Iowa. Um, and so I'd also practiced uh, with the Three Strikes Project at Stanford when the Three Strikes Reform passed in California. And so much of our work in bringing lifers home was about thinking about what happens beyond the courtroom, setting people up with housing and a job opportunity and, you know, substance use or mental health treatment if they wanted it. And, you know, really setting people up to succeed in life as well as thinking about the legal case. So when I went to the Bronx, I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, I get to work as part of a, an interdisciplinary team. And when my client says, hey, I know you want to talk about the suppression hearing in my criminal case, but I want to talk about my housing situation mm -hmm. and my kids, I could say, we've got you. Yeah. We've got you. I never had to say, oh, I'm so sorry, we can't help with that. I could say, absolutely, let me walk you down the hall to my colleague who specializes in that, and we're going we're gonna to protect you. Yeah. Um, but coming in, you know, from a traditional public defense background, I, I couldn't help but think, like, it's so sweet that this exists, you know, few well-resourced public defenders. Why can't we have this everywhere? Hmm. I mean, I, I think a question that we sometimes encounter on the show when we are talking about providing more services for people who are struggling is people are just like, well, why should people who've been charged with a crime sort of quote, like get something extra or get more from the system than someone who hasn't been? <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's a really, it's a question I get all the time and here's what I have to say. We all want the same things, right? We all want to live in a safe neighborhood where you can walk down the street at any time of night and feel fine walking by yourself. Um, I say as a smallish lady who wants to walk down streets by myself. <laughs> we all want thriving corner stores and greater public health. Um, we want our neighbors to be doing well so that we are all doing better together. Mm. When we acknowledge that so much of what causes people to engage in harm in the community is because of an underlying unmet need that we can meet if we push the right resources towards it. We recognize that we all get safer when we give those of our neighbors who are struggling the support they need to no longer be in that struggle or to alleviate that struggle. And you know, it's hard because we're so trained in our legal system to like react in ways that are about who we're scared of and who we're mad at and we're taught that, you know, punishment works and if you punish somebody hard enough it's deterrent. The problem is the data doesn't bear that out. 
what the data says is punishing people harshly doesn't stop future crime. But giving people housing or making sure they have access to income or, you know, making sure that kids have something to do with their day or actually fostering strong and healthy relationships. These are all things that robust studies have shown lower crime. So we got to stop doing what we emotionally think we're supposed to do and start paying attention to the data. And this program is really evidence-based and, and arises from that data. What about the cost of a, a program like you know, you run in Partners for Justice or, or out in the Bronx. I mean, is this something that basically the, the taxpayers end up like picking up the bill for? Um, not so it's it's interesting. It actually has the potential to save a lot of money. Um, our initial analysis shows that every dollar that a jurisdiction puts towards what we call collaborative defense, mm -hmm. which is sort of advocacy that goes beyond the criminal case and works on all these other issues, can actually save taxpayers three to six dollars in terms of reduced incarceration because supporting people means fewer people go to jail and prisons governments shouldn't have to pay as much or put as much money towards jailing and imprisoning people uh, that's not even counting the downstream savings of greater public health and greater you know higher employment levels greater economic mobility purely in reduced incarceration we can we can save people money mm. So talk to me about uh, founding uh, Partners for Justice. Um, you, where'd you get started and you know, how's the expansion gone? Yeah, so I was at the Bronx Defenders and I was thinking, man, I, I really wanna come up with a way to, to get these results, the ability to say yes to our clients, the ability to do more. I want that everywhere. Um, and I, I'm a good public defender. I know how to do the job, but I didn't know how to like build a company. <laughs> So I went and found my my childhood friend Rebecca Solo, who had gone on you know from our from our childhood together in Iowa. She'd become a very successful management consultant specializing in nonprofits and governments. And so she really had the expertise to do the company building and the you know effectiveness assuring side of this work. <laughs> so we came together. I took her out uh, for I think it was brunch, <laughs> and she two mimosas later she was in. Um, <laughs> Clever strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am. I am strategic. I am a lawyer. Um, no, it's been amazing. So we we had to find a couple of public defenders who would go on this journey with us. We knew that the key role was not another lawyer role. The key role was a non-lawyer service specialist who could learn how to do all these different forms of housing, employment, education, benefit stabilization, all of that, and also could tell the story of what our clients were achieving and doing and our clients' goals and hopes and fears and achievements, tell that story to judges and prosecutors so that our clients would be more likely to be released instead of sent to jail. So we wanted to put this role in two brave pilot public defender agencies who were interested in trying something new. We found those, uh, those, those pilot agencies in Wilmington, Delaware, and Oakland, California. Um, I think I accosted Brendan Woods at a conference where we were co-presenting. <laughs> and I think what I said was like, hey, you seem cool. Do you want to try this? <laughs> <laughs> and that worked. It worked. It worked, yeah. Um, so what has been the kind of initial um, kind of response in these kind of two places? And, and maybe even, you know, extending, you know, Bronx, and you know Alameda County and, and Oakland and, and Delaware? So the results have been phenomenal. Um, we are client-led, meaning that we very intentionally don't presuppose what people are gonna need. Um, we ask people what they need. 
And so we were able to do some initial surveys in these jurisdictions that showed that 75 to 90 percent of public defender clients had a need that we could meet if the defender was resourced to do so. Mm. Um, and on average, this is the other thing that's so important, nobody has just one need. Most jurisdictions offer services, kind of one service at a time. You go to one office to get the housing service and another office to get the employment service and another office to get the, you know, mental health support. Nobody has to go to just one place. On average, our clients have two to seven needs apiece. So when you create a one-stop shop inside their public defender, which, by the way, is a place they're going anyway. You're not asking them to go to a new provider mm -hmm. or go to a new agency that's open from 2 to 3.30 yeah. on Thursdays. Yeah, they're going to be there anyway. So we're offering, you know, as, as seamless access as possible to people at a place they have to go anyway. And it's interdisciplinary, so they don't, if they don't have to go themselves to multiple providers. They've got someone on our team, an advocate, helping create a feeling of a one-stop shop for them inside their public defender. And the results are staggering. We actually just looked at the last year of what we would call mitigation work in Delaware. That's, that's when an advocate has done some services with a person and then written up that person's story, given some context, and also you know written about the services that they've had and what they've been working on, and presented that information in writing to a judge or a prosecutor. This is a mixture of misdemeanor and felony cases. And in the last year, 87% of those cases, no prison, no jail, 71% found a path to dismissal. Wow. We're talking about the idea of holistic or collaborative defense, an approach used by some public defenders' offices around the country, including here in Oakland, that kind of try to provide wraparound services for people who are accused of crimes. We're joined by Emily Galvin Almanza, founder and co-executive of Partners for Justice. We'd love to hear from you. Have you had an experience with the Public Defender's Office? What went well? What could be improved? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Email your comments, forum at kqed.org. We'll talk about more when we get back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the idea of holistic or collaborative defense, an approach used now uh, by public defenders in Delaware, Alameda County, and the Bronx, among other places. Joined by Emily Galvin Almanza, founder and co-executive of Partners for Justice. And, you know, before the break, we were talking about the pilot program or the, this test program here in Alameda County. And we actually have Jameer Graham, who's a Partner for Justice advocate who works in the Alameda County Public Defender's Office. Welcome, Jameer. Hey, thanks for having me. So talk to me about 
you know, what's the day to day of being a client advocate in, in Oakland like? Um, it's kind of interesting to say, but day to day, my job as a client advocate is that essentially I just have conversations with my clients to see what service goals that they need help outside their legal case. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be from these conversations happen from the courtroom to the jails to your local Starbucks or to a service provider, which is pretty dope. Um, and essentially all the conversations happen around key service areas, such as getting connected to mental health services, um, substance use programs, housing, employment, getting your GED, or even getting your dog out the pound. So it's huh. pretty nice. Uh, and is that just basically that a person comes to you and says, like, Jameer, I need help with X, and you say, all right, let's go figure out how to do X? Or is there sort of like a menu you present? You're like, do you need help with, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Um, it's kind of a revolving conversation, but it's both of them at the same time. I present... I sit down with the client, have a conversation as we are now, and say, hey, like, what's going on? Do you need help figuring out what services you need? And then after that, we'll start to game plan about how we can get to those certain action items. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if you have to get your license and you have to go to the DMV and you're trying to figure out how to do it, what requirements are to be met and to meet those different requirements, um, it's a l- little bit of a task, but we start to figure out how can we get this done and real map it to make it happen. I mean, how do you see this as different from just, you know, traditional social work where you might just be working out in the field? I mean, I'm sure you run into people, uh, social workers and stuff. How do you think your job is different from theirs? Um, I think that's kind of interesting that you asked that. Uh, and I can speak to my role specifically as a client advocate is that when you're given a task and pick up a, become one of my clients is that there's things that you need help navigating and that you can go to, have you been to DMV lately or try to get your passport? (laughs) Yeah. And then you have like all these different requirements. It's a long line. You don't know where to start. And then you're like, I know it, forget it. Is that you have someone that's by your side that walks with you through this process that understands this process and is like, okay, like this is actually obtainable versus a long task, right? When we start to call different providers is kind of confusing you have 10 different phone numbers there's long wait lines you don't really know what's going on and then you have someone that just pops up like hey i got you what do you need to um get this done Mm -hmm. and you just have someone that advocates on just right by your side and helps you just navigate this whole process that sometimes i don't really know what goes on we just have to put in more investment and research that gives us more of a bandwidth to help understand Mm -hmm. um Emily, uh, as I listen to Jameer and I, I think about this, this idea, you know, there's been a huge momentum around criminal justice reform, you know, that certainly through the 2010s. Um, and in the Bay Area right now, you know, like when we do a show or even just looking at, you know, calls already that are that are starting to come in, we know that people are really concerned about the kind of day to day of, of crime and you've you've mentioned but even like the language of being like quote tough on crime has returned I mean are you concerned that the sort of socio-political situation on the ground is shifting people away from supporting meaningful reform in this space I'm concerned about bad information leaking into the media environment as it has for generations in this country 
What I'm not concerned about is whether or not this stuff works. I actually brought into the studio here with me like, like 15 stapled packets of data. <laughs> True um, lawyer but, stuff right there. Yeah. I wanted to have all my all my numbers on me, but actually on, on Partners for Justice's website, it's partnersforjustice.org, we've got a tab called Evidence. And if you click on that, we've got 21 different documents explaining how restorative things lead to public safety. An example might be one study um, provided housing to people who were at risk of criminal system involvement. The people who got housing, not only did they see crime in that jurisdiction drop by 80%, and the number of jail days that the cohort experienced dropped by 130%, they also saw 80% fewer ER visits and 24% higher employment rates. And that's just an intervention that's just pure, pure housing, nothing mm -hmm. else, no supervision, no checking on people. You know, other things, a person's physical proximity to service providers, just increasing it by one standard deviation decreases their likelihood of recidivism by 41%. I mean, there's all kinds of data out there mm -hmm. showing that when people have three things, housing, income, and access to mental health or substance use care if they need it, they are really, really, really not likely to engage in harm in the community. But what's hard is... Housing, have, income, and access to uh, mental access, health care. Yeah, and the, yeah. Yeah. Getting those things is really hard. And it's much easier to say, oh, my God, these bad people engaging in crime. Let's just throw more policing at it. And I understand the urge to choose a policy solution that feels really clear cut and also emotionally instinctual in some way. The idea that if you punish somebody for doing something bad, they're going to stop doing the bad thing. Unfortunately, the evidence doesn't bear that out. If we could punish our way to safety, we'd be a lot safer. I mean, my, my backpack got stolen last time I was in Oakland. I, I too am a victim of crime. I get it. But I also know that the slower, harder way is more effective. Well, you know, I, I think this is the hard thing, right? Because people want a faster solution you know like if mm -hmm. your store has been broken into four times you're like what do you want from me like i i can no longer get insurance that is mm -hmm. you know i think it's difficult especially around the the housing situation here because we i mean you know we've had a lot of shows on housing and i don't think anybody has offered up anything close to a solution that's the scale of the problem here right yeah and that's not just i mean the bay area sees it to an especially heightened degree, but we now have advocates in 24 locations around the country. We're working in our capacity building work with entire statewide systems. You know, I think we're impacting over 200 counties through that work. It's the number one issue everywhere is housing. And unfortunately, the solution seems to be increasing access to affordable housing, which is a slow, slow process. The process, the speed of change does not meet the urgency of the mm -hmm. need. Um, but I think it's also stymied in many ways when resources are directed to less effective solutions. Mm -hmm. So dedicating a huge amount of resources to fighting for, you know, longer sentences for fentanyl. That sort of thing is a huge distraction from what we know would be more effective, which is increased access to care providers and more housing. Jimmy, do you want to add anything on, I mean, you know, as a, just as a Bay Area resident before we head to the phones? Yeah. Um I am a Bay Area, area resident. I'm from Hayward, California, which is also nice. I hear you want to be mayor. <laughs> I do want to be mayor here <laughs> one day. That's part of my plan, so I'm excited about that. But I think it's true. I think that oftentimes that as a client advocate, I get to fill those gaps. Um, take, for example, when someone's looking to fill out their 
to get the prescription from a new service provider um, or to get connected to a mental health resource or transitional housing. Um, I think the conversation about housing, one thing that I've learned in this role is that there's lots of different types of housing and it's not just a one size fits all. Um, someone could be looking for emergency housing one day or it could be um, a substance use provider in patient housing. And so it's trying to figure out different service providers that fits your specific needs to get you to where you essentially want to go. And I think that's just a more in-depth conversation that we have to have with not just my clients, but with just the community as a whole. Is like, where do we see ourselves in the coming future? Mm-hmm. So, let's, um, let's take some phone calls. We have some very interesting and some challenging calls this morning. Uh, Robert, uh, welcome to the show. Robert in San Jose, you're on. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, this is not a... Hi, this is not a public defender question per se, but as a local law enforcement officer, do you partner with first responders to to help get services on first contact and maybe avoid some of these situations to begin with? I love the idea of the holistic approach, but I think a lot of these folks can be diverted earlier in the process mm-hmm. if there were more services. When I first started, we could have access to shelters and things like that 24-7 to help people get off the streets or, or out of uh, not quite criminal situations, but, but uh, calls for service that are concerning citizens. And now you have to make an appointment during regular business hours, and it takes three or four days to, to look for a shelter bed and things like that. It doesn't really help uh, on In scene. A, a cute right? situation, right, yeah. <laughs> Hey Robert, uh, thanks so much for that uh, that call, Emily. Maybe I, uh, the way that I might ask this or, or shade this question a little bit is how you see yourself in the ecosystem of other providers, because of course, you know, one of the things that we see here in the Bay Area, if you were to look at people who provide services in you know the city of San Francisco or in Oakland, there's like many, many, many providers. So like, where is your slot? Where's your role? And how do you interact with the other uh, folks around? Oh, I, I have to say I love Robert's question and I love I love that he brought it to us. And I might actually, after I give you my, my the best answer I've got, I might defer to Jameer in talking about some examples of what early early advocacy can do. So we work exclusively with public defenders. The reason for that is because in the entire ecosystem of the law, there's only one truly safe space for jail and prison system impacted people. And that is their lawyer, because their lawyer has an ethical and professional duty not to tell their secrets. You can be totally honest with your lawyer and it's their job to protect you and support you. That's not true of any other system stakeholder. What's really important about that is people can be honest with us about their real needs. Recovery is a messy process. Mm. Often there are unflattering truths involved in seeking help. And so creating a space where people can feel legally secure sharing their challenges is vital to doing a good job of what Jameer said and like tailoring those service offerings. But Robert is completely, completely on point that the earlier we can do this, the better. Um, one of the things that's really cool recently is that Santa Clara County, it's not actually that recent, I'm just old, <laughs> Santa Clara <laughs> right. County um, has been representing people earlier and earlier and earlier, closer and closer to the time of arrest. And I would say that the sooner you can get a public defense team in contact with a person who's going to be arrested or accused or processed in the system. I mean, I would be so in favor of resourcing public defenders to have a presence in the precinct the way they are supposed to at this stage in California for for, uh, for young people. 
um, because the earlier we can do stuff, the more effective we can be. We can deal with the crisis as it's unfolding. We can help people get access to what they need before they've had to like have their lives upended and lose their job or lose their housing or lose custody of their kids because of a criminal case. So while we don't, we would never embed with a law enforcement agency, we are completely in favor of public defenders being present sooner. But Jameer, maybe you, I mean, you might have represented people earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the cool thing about being a client advocate and how I'm positioned is that I'm a part, so when I'm assigned a case is that even when the criminal case closes, I can still work with that client on their um, service goals. And so, and to the second part of the question is that how we work with other community-based organizations that it's always a conversation. Like I always have, I even have a resource binder where I can call different organizations where I can just pick up the phone and we have great contacts and great working relationships to say, hey, look, like, what can we do to get my client to a program that best fits them? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's not just spread out across the board is that we also we have like working meetings, we collaborate with them and we have ongoing conversations. When it pertains to the immediate, the reality is yes, like, there, there are wait, there are wait times. There are long amount of bureaucracy and kind of red tape to get some of the service they need right away. Um, but for the immediate, is that there are resources. Um, if someone needs emergency housing, we, we can call two one one and try to see if there's any beds open. But the reality is that it's it's hard to to have the programs that we have in place because I think we're just trying our best to um, fight for the services that we want to provide. For everyone in our community. Yep. Yep. Uh, we are talking about the idea of holistic or collaborative defense. It's an approach that's growing uh, among public defenders across the country, including uh, in Oakland. Joined by uh, Jameer Graham, who's a partner for Justice Advocate, works in Alameda County, and Emily Galvin Almanza, who's founder and co executive of Partners uh, for Justice. There uh, is an article in The New Yorker. Those who want to go uh, you know, even deeper into this topic can take a look. It's called uh, How a New Approach to Public Defense is Overcoming Mass Incarceration. Um, Emily, I want to uh, ask you this. One listener writes in to say, what about the recidivism rate and acknowledging the victims? Crimes have victims, and in many social economic environments, the victims are in the same situation as the perpetrators. How do you respond to perpetrators being treated better than the victims? Ooh, I love that question, too. First, I'd push back against a false dichotomy. Most of our clients have also been victims. I mean, there there isn't a clear line of these people are victims and these people are perpetrators. There's so much crossover. We've all heard the expression that hurt people hurt people. Um, And I think that's really, really true. Rarely have I represented someone who had not at some point also been a victim of crime. But the thing that I would say is this work is designed to lower recidivism. Everything we do, for the most part, except for the thing Jameer said about getting people's dogs out of the pound. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe, maybe, you know. (laughs) You know, strong um, social connections and feeling. Yeah. So look, um, if we wanted a system that would create crime and create future victims, we couldn't have designed a better system than the one we have right now. Everything about it. I mean, from the moment of arrest, one of the reasons we talk about early advocacy being so crucial is that when a person gets arrested, they might lose everything within a matter of days, including their mental health. Many jails will cut off a person's medications and wait to re-diagnose and re-prescribe them. So a person might not only lose their job, their housing, they might also lose their 
literally their internal psychological stability because of just an arrest. That person is then at much greater risk of engaging in harm in the community. So when we take a perspective that we're going to do the things that studies have showed us make people safer, we are attending to the needs of the community to have us, you know, to, to be restored, to have lower recidivism. Um, I would also say some of the best processes here are processes that listen to survivors of crime. You would be amazed how many survivors of crime say, I don't want you to just slap this person with a jail sentence. I want you to address the underlying problem. I know it's more difficult. This is a person perhaps who's, you know, an example might be someone who's struggling with a substance use condition that's impacting their behavior. A person who's survived behavior by that person may not want just another destabilizing jail sentence that's going to make that person's condition worse. They may want to address the underlying problem. So I think one of the things we're really intentional about is being clear that the same things that our clients are asking for are generally things that move them towards stability and success. And that's good for everybody. After we get back from this next break, I do want to talk a little bit more about recidivism and the studies that have been done on it. Um, we're talking about the idea of holistic or you know, collaborative defense, as our uh, guests here from Partners for Justice uh, call it. Emily galvin Almont is the founder and co-executive. Jameer Graham works here in the Bay Area. We're going to get to more of your calls and comments after the break, too. I mean, what questions do you have about the work of, of public defenders? Have you had an experience with the public defender's office? And, you know, what went well? What could have been uh, improved? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. If you can't get through there, try the email, forum at kqed. Org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Threads, we're KQED Forum, or you can go to the Discord, where we always have these conversations happening. If you don't know how to get to that, go to kqed.org slash forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. More on the topic when we get back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Emily Galvin Almanza, founder and co-executive of Partners for Justice, and Jameer Graham, who works for Partners for Justice here in Alameda County. We're talking about this idea of holistic or collaborative defense, kind of providing wraparound services to people who are accused of crimes. Uh, 
Emily, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, recidivism. Um, one listener writes in to say, you know, the guest should not be focusing on dismissal rate, but instead how much crime rates drop or how often people are repeat offenders. We've seen lots of cases in Oakland that get dismissed, but crime keeps going up. Um, on this topic, you know, there was a big RAND study um, in the Bronx, which is one of the places where these techniques were pioneered, that seemed to show that while there were a, a lot of positive effects of doing this work, that recidivism wasn't necessarily uh, affected. Um, do you feel like that Bronx study accurately represents the situation? Do you feel like you've, uh, you've been able to address things and work at Partners for Justice that's different or that could reduce recidivism more? So it's a little too soon to say because most recidivism measures measure recidivism over several years and we are we are only five years old as an initiative um which is really cool like we've we're very proud that we've you know eliminated almost five thousand years of incarceration in in just five years but i hear the guest um i'd say two things first of all if a prosecutor chooses to dismiss charges whether in the interest of justice or whether because they did not have the goods against a person in the first place we should all feel good about that because moves by the government to not overreach and not hyper prosecute the citizenry generally are good for all of our civil rights but i know that's not what the caller was really asking about <laughs> slight side note dismissals are usually good because prosecutors are not eager to give them um the second thing i would say though in that Bronx study, one thing you have to understand is that recidivism isn't one thing you can look at. So in the Bronx study, the Bronx is one of those 80-20 jurisdictions, where 80% of the cases are misdemeanors, low-level crime, not the stuff you see on Law and & Order. Um, and one of the factors we have to consider is what does recidivism look like in a hyper-policed jurisdiction? And by hyper-policed, I mean a jurisdiction where a person may be subject to arrest not because of serious misconduct, but merely because they are black and present, what we might term available for arrest. If you are getting more people out of jail, you are also making people more available to be arrested in a hyper-policed jurisdiction. And that hyper-policing can be a confounding factor because most people, when they talk about recidivism and fears of crime, they say, hey, if this person, you know, punched somebody in the street and then they got arrested and the charges dismissed and they punched somebody in the street again, you know, two months later, I'm worried about that. That's not what most recidivism necessarily is. Recidivism could be this person got caught, you know, a year later um, selling water bottles in front of Yankee Stadium or engaging in some other form of minor misconduct, you know, driving on a license that had been suspended because of failure to pay old tickets. Um, recidivism can look scarier than it is, I guess is what I'm saying. And the, the confounding factors that, that take place when we don't ask, for example, what was the person subsequently arrested for? Was it more, less, or the same level of seriousness as the prior thing? How about the, their past pattern of behavior? Were they somebody who was previously getting arrested, you know, every month, and now they've gone two years without an arrest? And sure, they did sustain a new arrest two years later, but that period of time had been elongated greatly, thus creating more safety for the community. You have to look at recidivism much mm. more carefully than I think most news reports do. Mm. Um, you know, Bonnie writes in to say, is there any reason not to work with legal aid offices as well as public defenders? I'm a retired public defender, now a voluntary attorney for legal aid of Marin, providing pro bono services to participants in Marin's community court. 
Participants in community court are indigent and face infraction charges for which they are not entitled to a public defender defense, but which may have uh, profound impacts. Kind of a specific question, but but interesting. Bonnie, you should call me. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think Jameer can probably talk about how he works with, you know, Bay Area legal aid and other civil legal service providers all the time. But um, when I say public defender, I mean anyone who is supporting and representing people who are accused of crimes. They could be infraction level crimes in the community. That that counts as public defense to me. Jameer, you wanted anything? Yeah. Um, we do work really close with Bay Area Legal Aid and Homeless Action Center. Um, and they come in very crucial for us because they address the needs that we can't necessarily um, attend to. And because I work at the public defender's office, they are a crimin- criminal Mm-hmm. law office but being able to partner with them take for example i have a client that needs to apply for ssi and they're trying to figure that out or i have a client that has a lot of just parking tickets over the years and they're trying to figure out how to pay that off so we oftentimes work with them and have a in-based like referral process that we able to fast track with those service providers so that our clients get the services that they need Let's um, go. Let's bring in another caller. Let's bring in uh, Paul in San Francisco. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Uh, we had a DA in San Francisco that uh, did not want to sufficiently prosecute fentanyl dealers with felonies. Isn't it true that certain DAs might have a felony case in front of them, but they do not charge them as a felony? They charge them with misdemeanor because they think it's easier to get the, uh, the case through the system? Hmm. Paul, thanks for that question. Emily, you want to? Ooh, I'd love to answer that. So on a national level, we actually see the opposite. There's a phenomenon called charge stacking. It's when prosecutors accuse somebody of any crime they think they can tenuously reach rather than the offense that most accurately reflects the conduct involved. An example might be um, a little girl punches someone at school and that is really a misdemeanor assault. But this little girl is under the age of 18, and in the youth system in California, um, prosecutors often tend towards felonies um, because since it's not seen as a criminal conviction, it's seen as an adjudication, the consequences are seen as lower for children, even though they may be life-altering. But a prosecutor generally will not purely charge just the felony assault. They may add assault with intent to cause great bodily injury or assault with a deadly weapon if that child was wearing, say, the kind of plastic ring you get out of a 25 cent machine. We see this all across the country because when prosecutors charge stack, when they make the charge that the person is facing at the outset scarier, and they make it a charge that carries a much longer prison sentence, it is easier for them to get someone to plead guilty, which from their perspective is more efficient. Let's remember we operate in a system where about over 95% of people in the criminal legal system plead guilty. Are 95% of people guilty in my experience? No, but the system is very, very hard to withstand. It requires coming back to court many, many times, skipping work, finding childcare, finding transportation, perhaps losing your job because of a scary initial allegation, or worse, if you're held in jail, separation from your entire life, your loved ones, being in an environment where you witness violence every day, being awakened at 4 a.m. with no food and brought to court in a cold bus. I mean, this is a really challenging process to withstand that many people will plead guilty to something just to make the process stop. Now, if that initial charge, say, is assault with a deadly weapon or assault with intent to cause great bodily injury and carries 
a many, many, many year prison sentence. This is now not for a child, but let's say it's an adult. An adult is weighing, I go to trial on this very scary charge, which doesn't reflect what I'm actually accused of doing. It doesn't reflect the facts, but the prosecutor can make it out. If I lose at trial by some horrible turn of fate, I will go to prison for decades. But if I plead guilty up front, I could get an offer. Sure, it's a low-level felony, but maybe I can get out on time served, or maybe I'll serve a very short period of time. The offer that would not have been attractive to a person charged with an accurate crime, an accurate description of what they did, uh, suddenly becomes more attractive when the alternative is a very, very, very scary, albeit low likelihood of success, crime. Mm. So this is not, it's definitely, definitely not the norm that prosecutors are self-reducing their own charges nationwide. Um, if prosecutors were more, more intentional, more thoughtful, um, or perhaps incentivized within their offices to seek restorative solutions and be more creative and think about, you know, what would make a person likelier to succeed and make us all safer going forward, what people get charged with would look really different. Let's go uh, to another call. Uh, Kathy in San Francisco, welcome. Welcome. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I just had a clarifying question for Emily. Um, so you said that there's a fine line between perpetrator and victim, and I understand that in various circumstances. However, that um, struck me in a really hard way when it comes to domestic violence and child abuse. And even if people were abused in their childhood or witnessed domestic violence, it sounds like you are having your listeners and that you are somehow, somehow validating and giving people that do domestic violence, um, verbal, emotional, physical abuse towards women and children, that we should have empathy for those perpetrators. That is strictly a perpetrator. And I would like you to clarify what you meant by that, because there's so many women out there and so many children that already feel like if they ever called someone out in their partner that were abusing them, that people will defend the abuser. And it sounded like you would be defending that person and having empathy for someone that would abuse women, children, their partner, whoever it could be. And it shouldn't matter if they grew up in an environment or what they saw. Someone is a perpetrator if they hurt children and they hurt their partners. Emily? Yeah, I hear you. Um, I do. And I'm actually thinking of some things really smart Jameer said to me recently about accountability, which I'll let him say when he, <laughs> if he feels like it. But um, first I want to say... You know, I myself am a survivor of sexual assault. And I certainly, I know that there are a lot of different reactions people have to being in my position. All of them legitimate. For my own recovery, it's important to me to also have empathy for the person who hurt me. That's not universal. That's not right or requirement. But what I think is right and is a requirement is that we understand that our system doesn't permanently remove anyone from their context. Over 95% of people who get locked up come back home at some point. And we have to ask ourselves, if this person has done real harm, 
do we want them to come back home in a way that makes them likely to do that harm again? Or do we want to force ourselves to find a way to address the driver of that harm? And yeah, sometimes addressing the driver of that harm involves finding out what is causing that person to behave that way and trying to work together as a community to create accountability and a change going forward. And to me, that I admit that my personal perspective is I care the most about making sure the bad thing doesn't happen again. And I care a lot less about other aspects of seeking blame. Mm. Jameer, did you want to talk about accountability? I mean, I, I assume this is actually a conversation that you have to have with, with clients like fairly regularly. Um, yeah, that's very true. I think that for accountability for me is that we work in the criminal legal system, that I go to court and you stand in front of a judge and the power of just walking into a courtroom, you just feel it just innately. Um, and that work in the systems that this pushes a path forward. Like, what happens next? What's the next plan? And in these instances is that we have to look at the underlying factors in which I have conversations with, conversations with my clients. Um, and oftentimes that may look like a domestic violence class, an anger management class, so that we can understand how we can move forward, that we have the ability to learn from our lives and how we can understand how we can navigate in the future. And that's where I kind of come to play is that I sit down with my clients to say, what's our next goal and what's our next steps? Let's bring in another caller. Um, Katie in Palo Alto. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so I am a jail chaplain and I'm always telling the inmates in county jail to work with their public prosecutors, to trust their public prosecutors, that this is the one person who has the ability to do things in confidence that other people cannot do. But I hear over and over, they don't call me back. I don't trust them. I don't, I don't think, they don't understand me. They don't understand my language. They don't respond. And I know myself, when I write letters of support for inmates, only about one in 10, if that, public prosecutors ever get back and say thank you for writing a letter about what this person has been doing in jail since they were arrested. How can we build trust inside, amongst the inmates in county jail for their public prosecutors? Uh, meeting us halfway <laughs> would be great. Mm, yeah. Katie, thanks for that um, that perspective. You know, another listener writes in to say, uh, Emily, so when does the public defending part come in? Is this program an added burden or distraction from defending the client? It kind of, um, I think Katie's question really gets to the problem, and uh, this listener's other question uh, gets to the, the model that you all have built. I will give a very brief answer. Um, public defenders need more resources in this country. Public defenders have unbelievable power to do good things in the community for all of us, but they can't do it if they're resourced with less than half of the funding, just of prosecution, not to mention law enforcement generally. Um, one of the things that's amazing about bringing advocates like Jameer into an office is that suddenly a client who may have been struggling to maintain contact with their public defender, whose public defender um, you know, may have been very, very focused on the trial case while the client really, really wants to talk about their housing situation. 
suddenly they have a person who is literally dedicated to meeting those needs, returning those calls, like being their person. It's actually so important that when we talk about collaborative defense, which is what we practice here at PFJ, there's six principles. I will not subject you guys all to a lecture on the six principles of collaborative defense, but I will say that one of the most important principles is empowering the client. And by that, we really, really mean treating each client like a valuable customer, someone whose phone call needs to be returned, whose questions need to be answered, whose needs need to be attended to. Um, and I would also say all of that strengthens trial defense. I think people often hear this work and they're like, oh, you're just doing like social services instead of public defense or instead of criminal defense. Not at all. I believe, as I think many Americans do, that we need someone to be a bulwark against government overreach and to hold the government accountable when they make accusations against the citizenry. And those people, when they are public defense attorneys, their best expertise, their best utilization is to go win cases, win those cases at trial. What's so great about bringing someone like Jameer onto the team is that the public defender who, by the way, came into this job to do good, came into this job because they want to help. They did not come into the job for the money. <laughs> they came in because they want to be, be, they want to show up for their community. Suddenly, instead of having to say, oh my God, I know you want to talk about your benefits, your SNAP application and your, your drug treatment program, but like, I need to talk with you about the suppression hearing. Suddenly that defender can say, absolutely, Jameer's got you on all that stuff outside of court. You and I are going to work on this hearing that we are going to win. So trial defense is strengthened by adding resources. We're going to talk about collaborative defense. Just wanted to get two really fast listener comments in. One, a social worker just wants to say, you know, a lot of social workers do the kind of full-service wraparound work that Jameer's describing, and, you know, it can be a misunderstood and even vilified line of work. Uh, I love social workers. Thank you for doing it. Another listener writes, I've heard a parole officer share similar stories, hand-holding, retraining of social skills. Folks who are coming out of the prison system have had to learn to survive uh, differently. We've been talking about the idea of holistic or collaborative defense. It's an approach growing among public defenders. Joined by Emily Galvin Omansa, founder and co-executive partners for Justice, and Jameer uh, Graham, partner for Justice, advocate working here in Oakland. Thank you both so much for joining us and for all those calls and comments. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.